Welcome to Policy for the People, a show that explores the public policies that can lift up all Oregonians. This show is a collaboration between KMUZ Radio and the Oregon Center for Public Policy. I am your host, Juan Carlos Ordonez. Pride Month is a time to celebrate the contributions of the LGBT community to our state and nation. But in this time of celebration, it's also important to recognize how far we have to go to achieve freedom and equality for all. Just last month, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security warned that threats of violence against the LGBT community are on the rise. We've also seen a slew of anti-LGBT legislation introduced in state houses across the country. In addition to increased hostility and threats to physical safety, the LGBT community also faces higher levels of another form of violence, what Gandhi described as the worst form of violence, poverty. In this episode of Policy for the People, we discuss the issue of poverty in the LGBT community with Dr. Bianca D.M. Wilson, a senior scholar of public policy with the Williams Institute at the UCLA School of Law. The Williams Institute is the nation's leading research center on sexual orientation and gender identity law and public policy. Here's my conversation with Bianca Wilson. Bianca, welcome to Policy for the People. Thank you, Juan Carlos, for having me today. This is great. Earlier this year, you and your colleagues at the Williams Institute published a paper examining LGBT poverty. In other words, poverty in the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender population. Before we get into the details of that topic, I want to talk about some of the challenges that come with doing that kind of analysis. What should our listeners know about the availability of data for measuring the economic well-being of the LGBT community? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, on one hand, we've had at least some level of data available for some time, starting with the same-sex couple data from the American Community Survey through the census. So that's been around for a couple of decades. But as you can imagine, it's really restrictive, right? Not all LGBT people are in same-sex couples. And really even that kind of way of thinking about it uh, doesn't account for transgender folks in the community. So we've had some level of data for a while. Uh, research that my colleagues and I have done for the last, say, four or five years have used health survey data out of the CDC, which does include and has for some time included both sexual orientation and gender identity questions. And that's been a great resource for talking about LGBT economics. However, the data sets that most economists and um, scholars and community advocates who are looking at poverty data, economic data, those type of data sets like the uh, community population uh, survey and the census more broadly, those do not ask questions about sexual orientation and gender identity. So there is a challenge. It's not that we have no data, but the types of data sources that scholars and advocates really looking at economics every day, the types of data sources they use and that we would want to use, they are not currently asking these questions. So, you know, we may have some progress, but there's, um, we need a lot more in this area. 
And maybe it's obvious, but can you say a little bit more about why it is a problem that some of the key government data sources like census don't fully explore these questions of the regarding the LGBT population and its economic well-being? Yeah, I mean, one of the issues is that the data sets that the government trusts as an indicator of how the U.S. population is doing in terms of economics, again, the census, the CPS, these sources are what our federal government and a lot of state governments are turning to. They're not using health surveys to make decisions about the economic well-being of folks in the U.S. So when they're making those decisions and they're trying to understand how the full population is doing, they're missing a big swath of the picture. They, they don't know from those data sets that they trust most how sexual and gender minorities are doing. So although census and other government surveys uh, often exclude LGBT folks, your organization has been able to draw up estimates regarding this community. Can you share with us what percent of the population identifies as LGBT? So, I mean, what we know from surveys like the Gallup poll in particular, but also, again, a number of health surveys include measures of LGBT status or identities, we know that between four and 7% of the US population identifies as LGBT. Um, Gallup, I think most currently is still showing around seven, 7.1%. Between four and 7%, that's a pretty wide range, it seems. It is, it, it is. And you know, we find that different health surveys, they tend to have a slightly lower um, proportion than what the Gallup poll has identified. It seems like a wide distribution, but this is still a relatively small proportion of the population. So we're not really sure yet, are those are those estimates really different or are they just, you know, sampling error? That's still not, not clear. But we know that there's approximately that range. What we do see, which is interesting, is that regardless of the data source, you do see some level of increase across each of them. So that is a feature. Um, they seem to be tapping into the same you know, set of identities, same characteristics of the population, meaning they're clearly capturing LGBT people in the data, um, even if it's at slightly different percentages, because um, they're seeing that same increase over time. And I wonder if you've seen any Oregon-specific data on this point, whether it's the same or different than the figure for national, uh, the national population? I, I know it's been a while, but my colleagues here at the Institute back in 2017 used um, the Gallup data to actually look at a state-by-state -state, uh, analysis and, and see that essentially Oregon looks quite similar to the rest of the U.S. I think the last estimate was around 6%. Um, in general, that's the case across the country that the point estimate looks a little different. Like you see some that are in the four point something percent, uh, some that go up to 8%. However, they're all relatively within this, this range. So o Oregon looks pretty similar. So let's turn to the question of poverty. 
what are the estimates of poverty in the LGBT population and how does it compare to the non-LGBT population? So in terms of differences between LGBT people and non-LGBT people, as of 2021, the CDC's health survey data showed 17% of LGBT people were experiencing poverty compared to 12% of non-LGBT people. So quite a lot higher. Yes, so significantly higher, and um, that was significantly higher you know, regardless of the year that we're looking at. So I think that's an interesting thing about understanding these patterns that nationally, we may have seen this drop in poverty for a period of time, um, you know, kind of close to the onset of the pand of the COVID-19 pandemic. But regardless of time period, we can, we persistent, we consistently see these differences between LGBT and non-LGBT people where LGBT people are experiencing more poverty. Take a moment to share this episode with your friends. It's a great way for people to discover this show, and it really helps us out. Also, please consider making a donation to the Oregon Center for Public Policy. Contributions by people like you helps us create more content like this. And it helps us communicate more broadly about how to advance economic justice in Oregon. Go to ocpp.org and make a contribution today. Thanks, and now to the rest of our show. Are there differences between subgroups of the LGBT community in terms of their poverty rates? Yeah, that is a great point, that while we know LGBT people as a whole, um, when we put the group together, are experiencing high rates of poverty. There, it is not a monolithic experience. There are subgroups that are experiencing higher rates of economic insecurity. Uh, that's something we started being able to demonstrate back in 2019 with a report, again, using health survey data. But there we saw that among LGBT people, the highest rates were among trans folks in general, and that's, that means transgender people, regardless of their sexual orientation, had very high rates, close to 30%. And so did cisgender bisexual women have very similar, similarly high poverty rates compared to um, the rest of the subgroup. So both cis bisexual women and transgender people had higher rates of poverty compared to cisgender, lesbian, and gay men, and bisexual men. And then, of course, much higher rates than all um, cisgender straight people. And what do you think explains these uh, differences? Yeah, I mean, this understanding why we see these subgroup differences is really one of those areas where we need a lot more research particularly as it relates to cisgender bisexual women. And I, I say that because we do know from an, um, both quantitative research and even some of my own qualitative research, looking at poverty among LGBT people, when we talk about trans folks, a lot of transgender people report severe levels of discrimination in, in employment, in housing in social services. 
in ways that give us a clear understanding of that pathway into economic instability. However, for cis bisexual women, we're just, we're still a little unclear about whether this can best be explained by sexual orientation or sexual minority status. So, I mean, this is something we need to understand more. And this kind of gets to the larger question about factors behind higher poverty rates among the LGBT population as a whole. I'm wondering if you, what theories there are for why there are higher poverty rates. Is it is it uh, discrimination that's at play or, or, or what, what else can be at play? Yeah, so when we, yeah, when we, when we wanna try to understand, so what what's going on with this LGBT economic disparity? Very first, very little research has been done to understand that. Um, that's really what drove us to do a relatively large scale qualitative project on this a few years ago. We wanted to understand what are these factors that predict whether people um, initially become economically insecure or what are the factors that are barriers to um, you know, getting employment, essentially getting out of poverty or, or getting higher incomes. So we wanted to try to understand that. And what we found in you know, doing these nearly 100 interviews in two counties in California was that some of the factors were exactly what you'd expect and what most people talk about when we say there's LGBT poverty. Yes, people tend to talk right about, um, or when we talk about LGBT poverty, people typically do highlight the significance of discrimination in employment or family rejection. And these were factors that came up. But what was notable and surprising in our study was how significant the factor of childhood poverty was. So a majority of our study, majority of the people who participated in our study were not only currently economically insecure, but they remembered being poor as children. And this is significant because often when we talk about LGBT issues, we go right to talking about the LGBT component. And our interviews with folks reminded us that a lot of LGBT people are experiencing poverty, um, at least initially, in the same way many folks in the U.S. experience poverty, and that is through intergenerational poverty. And so this was important to think about how the transition into adulthood in the absence of family resources and economic help is also a very relevant factor for LGBT people. But of course, then in addition to that, you know, some of the common issues that are also relevant for non-LGBT people like mental health and substance use, these issues came up as well. Um, and how, you know, having mental health problems, substance abuse problems, this impacts ability to maintain work, to navigate complicated bureaucratic processes for getting social services. It impacts the ability to maintain housing. And while these are issues that we know from research impact 
LGBT and non-LGBT people, we also know that LGBT people are more likely to experience those issues due to discrimination and minority stress. So we see this like really a constellation of factors that both appear very LGBT specific and those that are not. So I have seen figures showing that there's a much higher rate of homelessness among LGBT youth compared to other youth. I'm wondering if, you, if you've seen that as well. And it seems to connect to your earlier point about the connection between childhood poverty uh, and how it manifests itself in later poverty among the LGBT community. Yeah, definitely. So we've we've seen that, I think, for decades now, researchers um, and community service providers and advocates who have been focused on the needs of LGBT youth have noted these really high proportions of youth who are experiencing homelessness or some kind of unstable housing who are also LGBT. Um, some I'd say some of the most reliable estimates put those percents close to 25%. And that's significantly higher than the percent of LGBT youth in the general population. So we do have a sense that yes, queer youth are overrepresented among those who are experiencing homelessness. But again, here the answer to the question why or how is a little unclear. We do know from previous studies that LGBT youth who are experiencing homelessness, many of them do talk about family rejection being an issue, which could mean being kicked out of the home. But at the same time, as you noted, Juan Carlos, that we can't ignore the impact of the family resources that youth and their families start with um, and, and the role of childhood poverty. And that we also know that most youth who are experiencing homelessness in general in the U.S. have been part of families that were homeless and unstably housed. So again, here, we don't want to miss that connection when we talk about LGBT youth. We also know, you know, middle class and upper class families also reject their LGBT youth, but they don't necessarily end up on the street. So again, pointing out the significance of economic stability as part of that pathway for the overrepresentation of queer youth in the street or unstably housed. So we're living in a moment right now where we're seeing increased hostility towards the LGBT community, especially against trans people. You noted earlier how trans people seem to fare worse uh, than other sectors within the LGBT community. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the moment that we're living in and what that might mean, this increased hostility might mean towards the economic well-being of this community. Yeah. I mean, I, I think first we, we know from prior waves of anti-LGBT sentiment, so including the waves of um, very divisive and 
hurtful debates around say same-sex marriage and research showed that there was a mental health mental health impact for sexual minorities for lgb people to kind of hear those ongoing debates or which were essentially questioning the ethics humanity morals of lgb people in the u.s we, we know from research that that had a mental health impact, a negative mental health impact, at least among LGBT people. So knowing that the extreme negativity involved in the current debates related to transgender people as a whole, but specifically the targeting of trans youth, I am very concerned about the potential and likely mental health impacts that that is going to have. And so when we want to tie even then down the road to economic security, again, mental health um, is an important factor that, that is connected to economic security. So there is that component. I think there's reason to be concerned that while the public is debating healthcare and who deserves what kind of healthcare publicly, that the tone of a lot of that debate, again, questions the humanity, um, bodily autonomy of trans people, trans adults, trans youth, and parents who are trying to care and affirm their trans youth. I am concerned that that will continue to promote a general anti-trans sentiment. And as you noted, our research has shown that an anti-trans bias is a re very relevant, a very salient factor in how transgender people experience the employment sector, how they experience the housing sector and social services. So I think we have a lot to be concerned about in terms of the ripple effects of the current debates and clearly anti-trans targeting legislation. So let's switch gears here in the few minutes that we have left and talk about what policymakers should be doing to address some of the problems we've discussed. And let me start by asking first what you would like to see census and other government bodies do in terms of data collection. Yeah, that's great. I would say data policy is one of the most significant areas of LGBT-related policy right now. In terms of the federal surveys, the sooner that we're incorporating questions about sexual orientation and gender identity status in ways that let us accurately assess who's a sexual and gender minority and who is not, then that will improve our overall just understanding of the U.S. population, which is fundamentally what those large-scale surveys are supposed to do, is help us understand the U.S. population. And this is an important segment of the U.S. population. So it'll help us do that better. And it'll better help us track, are we improving or getting worse in terms of responsiveness to the disparities that exist? So I do think data policy is an important area of LGBT-related policy. And in terms of policies that address poverty within the LGBT community, what would you prioritize? 
Well, here, rather than necessarily one specific policy, I think one thing that our research, and I hope it continues to emphasize for people what our research showed, is to the extent that childhood poverty and intergenerational poverty is a significant factor in the economic stability of LGBT communities. That tells us that the economic policy solutions that we target toward communities of color generally, that includes particularly American Indian um, communities in the US, Black communities, Latinx communities, the policies that we focus there on people with children, particularly um, women with children, those types of policies we would expect would have a positive impact for LGBT people as well. Because before they were poor LGBT adults, they were living in those communities with their families of origin that were already experiencing economic instability. So I think that's really an important area and an important shift in how we think about what is an LGBT-related policy when it comes to poverty, when our research seems to be showing us that it might be many of the same policies that would impact and improve the lives of people of color generally, immigrants generally, women and children generally. Bianca, any final thoughts you want to share with us regarding economic insecurity of the LGBT population? I, I mean, in terms of final thoughts, I say, you know, connecting it to kind of this issue of who among LGBT people are poor. I mean, one thing just to highlight is that, yes, there are subgroups in terms of sexuality and gender, but we need to not lose track of the fact that most of the LGBT people who are experiencing poverty are people of color, similar to what we see among non-LGBT people. I mean, our most recent estimates, you know, demonstrated that 25% of LGBT people who are people of color were experiencing poverty, but that number was 20% for the people of color who are cisgender and straight. And both of those percentages are higher than all the white people, regardless of whether they were LGBTP, LGBT. So that's significant because I think similar to my comment about the kind of policies that would be relevant and that they need to be focused on overall communities, a lot of those policies also need to be in the interest of addressing structural racism and its impact on the U.S. and on economic stability overall. And again, there, to the extent that we focus on that, we are likely to be inherently at the same time also improving the conditions of LGBT people, because many of those that are poor are also people of color. Bianca Wilson, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to Policy for the People. We will see you next time.